Hey, chocolate lovers. This month, I bring to you a most unusual episode, which will probably become more of the norm in the near future. I have for you a full-length interview that is completely standalone. Back in June, I was contacted by a book publisher about yet another chocolate book, and they wanted to send me a free copy. I said no, but she was pretty relentless. She told me a bit more about the book and about the man behind the book, and once my copy came in the mail, I was thoroughly impressed. So this month's episode is an interview with medicinal herbalist Marcos Patchett. Marcos is based in London, and he spent the last 14 years writing his book, The Secret Life of Chocolate. In his book, he touches on basically every aspect of cacao and chocolate, from its ceremonial uses in ancient Mesoamerica, to chocolate allergies and acne, and the other botanicals which have been traditionally consumed alongside cacao. So, let's get into it. Um, do you have any questions? Are you ready to get started? No, not at all. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm glad that you like the book, really, and that you've, you've, you've been getting into it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for that. <laughs> I think Mel, Mel from Eon said she'd sent you it, and you were like, "What, another book on chocolate?" <laughs> it's just like there are a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally get that reaction. I mean, there's, there's been so many. I mean, I started writing it back in 2006 and there were quite a lot then and like every year that went past and I hadn't finished the book another another couple came out and I was like no but on the plus side I've been able to use some of their research so that's a plus do you know what I mean but okay so can you introduce yourself who are you and what do you do right hello uh, I am Marcos Patchett I am a medical herbalist I'm based in London a medical herbalist people who don't know it's um, somebody who uses medicinal plants and treats people with medicinal plants so I trained to do that through the sort of quote-unquote official route I did a BSc at Middlesex University from 2001 to 2005 and I qualified then and since then I worked uh, for a few years with people living with HIV in central London and I set up my own practice and I've since taught at Middlesex University on their BSc program, the same BSc program that I studied at, and on their MSc program as well. I'm basically a, a sort of a, a hippie with a science degree. <laughs> so, I mean, how did you get into the subject of cacao and chocolate back in 2005, 2006 in London? It yes. feels like it wasn't very popular back then. Well, a um, couple of ways, really. What got me into herbs in general was I was interested in psychotropics. I mean, that was because as a teenager, I, I did an art, art degree first. So I was a total like dropout art student, which is not a bad thing, by the way. And when I was doing that, I was got interested in lots of uh, psychoactive plants and firstly, I, I did the standard sort of being a teenager, taking too many drugs and uh, damaging my health. And then I sort of got into plants to try and recover my health or as alternatives for that. And I became interested in chocolate during that period. I mean, I, I talk about it in the book a little bit when I was 
in my late teens, I was partying a lot and chocolate was one of my recovery things at the weekend. I always used to sort of have that every weekend and it's always been something that I've enjoyed a lot. And then when I stopped taking pharmaceutical drugs and just focused on the plants, I became more interested in cacao specifically. And then the second element was that there was a book written by one of my favourite authors, Jonathan Ott, who's an ethnopharmacologist. He wrote this little book, I think in the late 80s, called Chocolate Addict. And it's his paean to chocolate and cacao, basically. And I read that and I found it really inspiring. So I was already a bit of a chocolate addict. That really um, infused me. But one of the things that he kept saying in the book, he's uh, not into all this hippie stuff, the idea of there being synergy, that plants have maybe more than one active constituent and some of them have a whole raft of active constituents and they work in concert and the, the effect of the whole drug is more than the effect of any of its individual constituents. He's very much a sort of one drug, one plant kind of guy. And he talks about theobromine in cacao being the active constituent and how really it's the theobromine that's responsible for its reputation as an aphrodisiac and its stimulant properties and it's nothing else. And I thought at the time, and still think even more, having written a book about it, he's wrong about that. So I was kind of inspired by his work, which is fantastic, but also a little bit annoyed by, by it. So I wanted to look into that more. And then the third reason was that when I'd done my degree, I wanted to write a book. I wanted to research something. Chocolate was an abiding long-term passion of mine. I was already into the subject and I thought it would be a useful vehicle for transmitting several ideas that I have. This kind of introducing the idea, hopefully, of complementary medicine or natural product medicine to many people. The idea that plants may in some cases be a better form of treatment than isolated pharmaceuticals, not in every case, not as a you know universal rule, but certainly they have a, a unique ability to do many different things at the same time. And so I thought that chocolate being, I hoped, a fairly popular theme would be a useful way of doing that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from my reading of the book, I'd say that the overarching theme is cacao as medicine. But it also seems like the beverages have historically been the method of ingestion. So yes. talking about the idea of combining different herbs and, and spices and just natural plant-based material as medicine, what would you say are the traditional categories of beverage that were prepared for various ailments? And how and by whom were they prepared? Because I saw a lot of recipes in the book. I mean, this was one of the main reasons for me writing the book as well, but I wanted to reconstruct many of those ancient beverages and dig into them. Essentially, I, I classify the drinks in the corn-based beverages and the non-corn-based, more expensive, if you like, beverages. So the categories that I sort of break it down to into the book are those still in use in contemporary Mexico, which are like, broadly speaking, the atoles. Atoles are the sort of corn-based gruels that are drunk by your average man or woman on the street in Mexico um, and Guatemala and much of Central America today. And they're of ancient origin. So it would have usually been women who prepared these beverages. And then as now they contain various different ingredients and those ingredients and, and formulations vary by location. 
like the plants that were available and the techniques that were used and known to the people living in that area. The higher class of drinks, uh, what the Mashika called Klaketsali cacao, the, the sort of really posh cacao that didn't contain corn, there was just cacao and water and herbs, that would usually have been reserved for nobility because it could only have been afforded uh, to be drunk by the nobility. It was, it was usually a, a sort of taboo for, for commoners to drink it. The Maya societies, because most of the Maya regions are in cacao growing regions, would probably have been a bit different. There, it's likely that both men and women drank cacao. There are um, engravings of, of uh, gods and goddesses sharing cups of foaming cacao. In terms of medicinal function, broadly, cacao was drunk as a ceremonial substance, as a sort of, I think, as a sacramental substance in rituals. But it was also kind of a universal social substance, a bit like how we would use coffee or champagne today, served at sort of higher end social functions. Some of the more common cacao spices like vanilla, for example, like chili, like anato, would have been added just as enhancements for flavour, but also to improve its its ability to strengthen digestion. Um, I mean, I could go on. It, it was kind of getting at the idea that people have they figured out that there are ceremonial beverages that um, Aztec and Mayan peoples or Mexica and Mayan peoples used to consume um, before like sacrificing people and on special occasions. And that's like, that's all people have in their heads. Um, but a lot of what I was reading was about how there were almost hundreds of different formulations for different cacao beverages, depending on where people were, what types of cacao they had available to them, like the ages of the tree. And it was just so interesting. You're 100% right, Max. I mean, it's um, a lot of the information, a lot of the, the recipes that I've got in the book are reconstructed. So I've said where I've been able to take them, the recipes directly from primary sources and where I, they're my attempts at reconstructing uh, formulas based on um, what I know about traditional ingredients and descriptions in old manuscripts and so on. But we do know that they had many, many, many different formulations of cacao, even at the time of the conquest, that sort of early part of the 16th century. By that point, the classic Maya so-called uh, era had been gone for 600 years, you know, so they, they, they'd elaborated loads and loads of different beverages. And even at the time of the conquest, they had many, many different uh, beverages made with cacao. I think it's the Florentine Codex, Sahagun's account, where he describes there's this list, and I, I this is taken from uh, Sophie and Michael Coe's brilliant book. They they recount this, where he lists you know the 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 blue green cacao, the pink cacao, the white cacao, the foamy cacao, the tree fresh cacao, all these different titles for cacao beverages that the that the Aztecs alone made at the time of the conquest. And then in terms of their function, yes, we know from historical accounts that they were used ritually in some way. It was used as an oblation. It was used as an offering itself alongside other precious substances like copal, jade, rubber, sort of iridescent feathers. It was seen as a repository of this magical substance called its, which was a bit like magic stuff that was produced during ritual. 
substances which had a lot of this it were substances which could change state. So if you grind cacao beans to a liquid and then leave them, they will set or congeal. So other substances which were high in it were human blood, rubber, because that again is a liquid which sets as a solid. Um, I think semen was another one. It's essentially, oh, and resin, tree resin, these sort of living substances which would set and were seen to be sort of conceived of as vessels of life energy. And I think probably cacao when it was drunk, because it has this reviving, restorative effect, was doubly seen as that. It was kind of this this substance which acted physically in that way and had this notable, energizing, life-promoting, life-enhancing effect when ingested. It's really interesting. But, I mean, in various chapters, you you enumerate the various botanicals that have been added to cacao beverages over the years. And, it, I mean, it got me curious. Is there anything that it was never appropriate to add to a cacao drink? <laughs> Oh, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure there were lots of things, Max. I mean, that the flowers that I talk about there are the ones that I specifically know were or are, or in most cases were and are added to cacao beverages. So the categories of additives really are sort of flavoring, which would be the aromatic herbs and spices and flowers, foaming agents, and psychoactive additives which may have been used in the past and then finally medicinal additives um the foam of pre-columbian cacao was one of its distinctive features and all of the carvings you see these huge heads of foam and if you just like toast cacao beans and shell them and, and grind them and mix that with water and froth them you'll get a little head of foam like a cappuccino style maybe a centimeter foam but you won't get this sort of bodacious bowl of foam like they used to get and you can see represented in all the carvings i think they they had to have used foaming agents and these foaming agents are still in use in mesoamerica today so i document in the book three that i am certain of specific to oaxaca is uh, this stuff called cacao blanco, which is not actually cacao at all. It's uh, the seed of a related species, Theobroma bicolor, uh, which they bury for six months in a water-filled pit and allow it to ferment. I mean, there's there's a whole procedure which I describe in the book. It's not you can't just dump it in a pit filled with water in the ground and they 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 sort of like do this whole process. They take it out once in the middle and turn all the seeds and everything. Um, apparently it really stinks and then when when the whole process is finished they take it out and it's this chalky rubbery white tasteless odorless seed with a little shriveled black skin and that is used as a foaming agent um the only other issue is that we don't know a lot about pre-columbian internal medicine because of course most of the accounts were destroyed by the missionaries over the years so We've got architectural records and we have some accounts by Spanish chroniclers like Diego Duran and Hernandez and Sahagun and these other guys who wrote everything down. But we don't have a lot of the native records such as they were. I mean, looking, you, you obviously can't travel back in time and see if anything was disavowed from cacao beverages. But is there anything in modern day Mexico, Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras, where people just were not comfortable 
with adding to cacao beverages. And I don't mean things like meat or anything like that. Oh, so, I mean, yeah, sure, sure, sure. In modern days, that that the, the recipes are very traditional, and you don't really mess with them. Um, you know that there are there are hundreds hundreds of different atole formulas, but they're very specific by region and very traditional. And you can see the ingredients and processes have been handed down. So it's not it's not a free for all. <laughs> it's it's kind of like that that while there were many 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 different variations, the processes were all sort of time tested and the ingredients were all tested. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And I mean, nowadays, we don't generally have corn in our chocolate and or many other things. But on the topic of adding ingredients to cacao, in recent years, there's been a lot of talk about antioxidants in chocolate, especially dark chocolate. But could you expound upon how cacao's antioxidants bioavailability is maybe affected by the more common additives in chocolate? Sure, yes. That's a topic I go into in the middle section of the book, you know, when I get into all the pharmacology in it. The main class of compounds in cacao that are being studied now are the polyphenols. And you find polyphenols in lots of different plants. They're very common compounds. But the collection of ones found in cacao are perhaps unsurprisingly known as the cocoa or cacao polyphenols. They comprise about three to four percent of the dried weight of the plant, and they are broadly speaking antioxidants. Now, what antioxidant means for those of your listeners who, who don't know is substances which stop the production or offset the production of free radicals. What antioxidants do is they donate an electron to that free radical and stabilize it. They go, here you go, buddy, and they stabilize it. And then it stops being reactive and bouncing around like a little terrorist and stops damaging things. So the research on cocoa polyphenols shows as a group that they are responsible for the main benefits in terms of protecting the linings of blood vessels, improving circulation, reducing the risk of heart attack and stroke, possibly reducing the risk of dementia. However, while some of those benefits may be down to their functions as antioxidants, reducing cellular damage, many of them are not. Many of them are actual specific separate pharmacological functions of those molecules. You're saying about bioavailability. This is something I go into in chapter four about this whole issue of what's called uh, in technical language pharmacokinetics. What gets to where, which is a, a critical issue when you ingest it. And also, what is the quality of the thing that you're ingesting? So with cacao, for example, the whole dried bean contains 4% cocoa polyphenols. And you have different ratios of different compounds in different types of cacao seeds before you've even done anything to them. Then you ferment them, which changes the ratios of polyphenols. It'll usually break down the polyphenols a little bit. And then you toast them, which will break them down a bit more. And then you may go even further and press the fat out of it and create cocoa powder. And once you've pressed the fat out of it, what happens then is that the air, oxygen, can get to the polyphenols more because it turns out that the fat in the bean actually protects these polyphenols from the air, keeps oxygen away from them. 
and oxygen reacts with these um, antioxidants and donates loads of electrons to them and kind of uses them up and makes them less effective. <laughs> it, it degrades them essentially. So cocoa powder is the least antioxidant of all the forms of cacao. But then, <laughs> just to complicate the issue, as I point out in the book, there's this whole, we know about this whole raw cacao movement. One of the arguments of the sort of raw cacao people is that raw cacao, because it's much higher in antioxidants than these polyphenols, because they haven't fermented it, and sometimes they have actually, but they certainly haven't toasted it, it's higher in these polyphenols and therefore it is going to be better for you. Maybe, that's the, I, I say maybe to that. I have a couple of reasons to be a little bit, not suspicious, but cautious about that claim. The first is that a lot of raw cacao products are in the form of powders, defatted powders. So what I've just talked about applies. The minute you defat cacao, the fat is actually protecting these polyphenols from oxidation. So even though the raw cacao powders will have been defatted and then immediately sealed in vacuum, you know, in, in with a non with an inert gas like nitrogen in a little foil sealed package, the minute you open the package, it starts oxidizing. So they do lose potency. The second thing I've noticed is, is that with raw cacao, it definitely doesn't have at least to me and to many other people I've spoken with, as strong an effect as traditionally prepared, lightly toasted cacao. None of this is to say that raw cacao is bad. It's just to say that the claim that just because raw cacao has more antioxidants, therefore it is better, is probably a little bit simplistic. And I do go into other reasons and, and argumentations in the book as, as, as to why that may be. This is not to say raw cacao is bad. I'm just saying that it's that like many things in life, the truth may be a bit more complicated. Isn't it always? <laughs> yeah, sure. When it comes to adding, for example, milk or refined sugar or like coconut milk, as it's called, or other nuts, is there anything in those substances that would necessarily affect the bioavailability of... Yes, that's an interesting... Yes, thank you. Thank you, Max. That's an interesting question as well. Um, okay, let's do that. Milk first then. So with the milks, it really depends on the protein content of the milk. Broadly speaking, you don't want to be adding um, really high protein liquids because the proteins will bind potentially to the polyphenols and to the alkaloids. The alkaloids are the stimulating bits, the theobromine, the theophylline, the caffeine. So they will reduce the absorption of some of the nice chemicals that you generally want to be absorbing when you are ingesting cacao. So cow's milk uh, is, is, is quite bad for that. Potentially also soy milk isn't ideal because soy is also moderate. I don't know how high it is in protein, but I think it's out of all the plant milks because it's a legume based plant milk, it would be higher. You'd probably be better off with a, a relatively higher carbohydrate milk, such as coconut milk, you should be fine. Almond milk, you should be fine. Oat milk should be fine. I mean, all of these are really like this is this is really nuanced. It's not going to make the biggest difference. Uh, on the other hand, second part of the thing, sugar. Interesting. I mean, sugar. I'm not a fan of sugar, as you you know may gather if you if you read the the, the book. 
um, because it's not good for you. Um, I mean, certainly it improves the flavor. Yep, that's fine. Uh, but it's obviously not good. But interestingly, sugars and carbohydrates in general, so that goes for simple sugars and for starches, do increase the absorption of the polyphenols. So sweetened cacao, funnily enough, you do absorb more of the polyphenols. And secondly, the cacao, the, the sugar rather, may also feed naughty bacteria in the gut. And again, cacao probably offsets that because they found in studies that um, the cocoa polyphenols benefit the microbiome. And that was found in a rat study and in a small human study as well. They found that both rats and humans who were given uh, cocoa products in their diet for a couple of weeks had beneficial changes to the microbiome. They, they like in the humans, I think they they develop less proteobacteria and more lactobacilli and um, bifidobacteria in their guts, which are the quote unquote friendly bacteria. So sugar is not the worst addition to cacao, basically, because its greatest evils are offset by cacao. And it's um, it, it may, in fact, enhance the absorption of cocoa polyphenols. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned earlier cacao ceremonies, and I mean, over the last few years, I've noticed a sort of sudden spike in offerings of cacao ceremonies and yeah. ceremonial cacao, um, processed and unprocessed. So, could you tell me more about cacao ceremonies, including their origins, proper execution? Well, just from my point of view, that the guy who originated the cacao ceremonies was Keith Wilson, who I do a little interview with at the back of the book, and, and I visited in Guatemala in 2011. He's been doing them for about 20 years. He styles himself a cacao shaman. He does these really fantastically interesting cacao ceremonies in, in uh, San Marcos in Guatemala. So if you, if you have an opportunity to go there, do. It's really interesting to take part in. Um, but he's the guy who really developed the idea of cacao, of using cacao in this way. So it's fundamentally a modern invention. Now, as I hope to show in the book, cacao does have this ancient ritual use, but we really don't know any specifics about what, what that looked like. There are certain themes that you can identify that I, I identify in the third part of the book and certain ideas that they obviously had about it, such as it being a repository of this it, this magical power for change in the world. Um, but we don't know the specifics. So, so cacao ceremonies per se are, are really modern inventions. That's not to say they're bad. I think it's totally relevant. Inspiration is a thing. You can receive things. The reason we write Rx above a prescription, this is a, a relevant tangent, I hope. People think it's an abbreviation of receive or receipt. No, it's actually the old astrological symbol for the planet Jupiter, which symbolized faith and inspiration and drawing down inspiration from the heavens. So you'd always write that before you prescribe something. So I'm not averse to the idea of reinventing or rediscovering or being inspired by these things and, and putting them together i do get a bit upset though when people promote these ceremonies as being these fully ancient things or like you know these really authentic ancient mayan things when it's like well well they're they're not but i do think it's very interesting that these ceremonies have been developed, that sort of Keith developed this and then it's really being taken on because I suspect, as I argue in the third part of the book, that cacao does have this 
intention facilitating fear dissolving role and that role I think is very traditional it's like I, I used a quote from um, Harry Potter you know the bit about um, you know when Harry gets attacked by the Dementors and Professor Lupin gives him some chocolate afterwards to help him recover I think that's fascinating because one of my hypotheses when you look at the pharmacology of cacao and its traditional use and even its use now in these ceremonies is that I do think it is a useful means of dissolving conditioned fear or at least helping to get some leverage on it. So on a slightly more particular note, you mentioned a couple times in the book the idea of green cacao beverages. Uh, could you explain what these are uh, and their relationship to like modern cacao processing and consumption? Right. Okay. I mean, I think I can't remember who I might have got this from Sophie and Michael Coe's book, and also the Cameron McNeil book. So the the Spanish were confused by this when they first sort of came over. Sargun describes green cacao as being sort of intoxicating or, or making one dizzy and also it refreshes you but if you drink too much it can make you dizzy or derange you kind of green literally usually means fresh so there's a couple of possibilities it could be like a refresco like a uh, made from cacao fruit pulp given that they talk about it being refreshing and invigorating but then potentially deranging or making you dizzy or sick it's probably alcoholic so it might be a early fermented kind of cacao wine or a sort of fermented refresco of cacao where they take the fruit pulp which is very lovely actually it's a bit like lychee it's sort of like slightly mucilaginous lychee <laughs> but it's got a little bit of its ca caffeine in the fruit pulp as well so it's slightly stimulating and refreshing in that way so it could have just been the fruit pulp mixed with water and then allowed to ferment a bit so it could, rather than being a cacao beverage in the terms we would understand it, rather than be made from cacao seeds, the roasted seeds, it could, green cacao could have been made from fresh pulp, hence the name green. Like a cacao cider of sorts. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> so this is the first thing I looked up in the, the book's glossary was allergies because this is something I have had personal experience with, unfortunately. It's found upon a concept of chocolate allergy versus intolerance and the role of histamines and maybe histamine intolerance with people not doing so great with cacao products. Yeah. I don't think I have a definitive answer to that, but I do cover that, I think, in Chapter 7. Cacao is one of the foods which is slightly higher in histamine. So some certain foods have a higher natural histamine content. It's not through the roof by any means, but it's it's up there with things like strawberries. So if somebody has a histamine, what's called a histamine sensitive condition or a high histamine condition, particularly something like urticaria, then in some cases they might react to cacao. In general, though, statistically speaking, <laughs> and we know that there are always going to be exceptions to these rules because statistics are obviously very broad brush. But um, statistically speaking, there are um, they're pretty rare. Actual allergy to cacao is pretty rare. But for some people, if they do have histamine sensitivity, high level of histamine in their system, it could be a bit triggering. Many people have food sensitivities 
not many people have food allergies. The food allergy is a true immunological response to the food where you're going to be producing antibodies to it. You're going to, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you keep eating it, you will die. You know, that's a food allergy. Um, a food sensitivity um, is sometimes multifactorial. It's not like there's an explicit immune response to the food. It's just that whenever you eat that food, bad things happen. The only way, like as a practitioner, as a herbalist, if somebody has suspected food sens sensitivities, the only way of really dealing with it is to get them to eliminate that food <laughs> for a couple of weeks and um, just not eat it and then reintroduce it and see if the thing happens and then do that a couple of times and see if it happens again and so on. For some people, though, it may be a pharmacological sensitivity to the caffeine or to the um, maybe what I call the fairy dust constituents in it that, you know, enhance its, I suspect, enhance its psychoactive effects, in which case you may just want to eat a bit less of it and see how you get on with a reduced dose. I mean, generally speaking, if something makes you feel really shitty, then don't eat it. What was your experience with it, Max? What was um, what? When you say, are you actually allergic to cacao or is that what's what's happened there? I hope not. <laughs> I've been dealing with histamine intolerance for the last uh, five or six months and um, have been dealing with symptoms of it for the last few years. Ooh. Um, and one of the things that I've slowly been able to tolerate a lot more of in the last month or so, but that really gave me very bad stomach aches was chocolate and then also refined sugar, dairy and I feel like it may be a combination of a lot of intolerances that I'm slowly healing from. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say just if if you've been having these sort of any sort of urticaria, any high histamine reactions, which you have been, then um, you definitely want to cut back. Now, one of the things I talk about in the book, though, and this is very interesting, and that's in that chapter, I think, is that chocolate actually is able to reduce allergic sensitivities to other foods which is very interesting and it seems to do that by a direct mediation of secretory iga which is one of the little antibodies in the gut it seems to reduce the production of secretory iga which is one of these little immune system antibodies that makes you react to stuff in the gut now that could be a good thing or a bad thing but in terms of food sensitivity it's clearly a good thing. So, uh, so in these little animal experiments they did where they fed all these animals cacao and then other stuff, they found that the cacao actually reduced the inflammatory reactions to other foods they were allergic to. So cacao could actually be quite a useful thing to include in your diet if you suffer from food allergies in general. A question I'm sure you're asked a lot is, does chocolate cause acne? Ha 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 ha! It's I, well. Uh, that's a, an interesting one. <clears throat> Unfortunately, again, this is in chapter seven where I talk about the potential problems with chocolate, or you know, and, and which ones may be myths and which ones may be true. This does seem to have some potential truth to it, particularly for younger men. Now. Don't despair because chocolate from the research does seem to have many benefits for the skin. It does seem to reduce various, um, at least in one small human trial, it was found to reduce various measures of skin aging, not wrinkling, unfortunately, really unfortunately, but it did improve skin hydration and skin appearance and circulation to the skin and all the rest of it. However, 
there was a recent trial, I think younger men, uh, they did a comparison study whether whether chocolate seemed to make their acne worse. And it, it did actually just including chocolate in their diet did give them more spots. And that the reason was it seemed to it seemed to increase the production of, of sebum on the skin and uh, therefore increase the growth of, of certain bacteria in the skin, uh, which which gave rise to acne. So I would say in terms of probable food triggers, just, and this is me with my herbalist hat on, it's probably way down the list below stuff like dairy products and loads of sugar in the diet in terms of aggravating things. If you want to help your acne, just eat loads more veg and cut out or cut down refined sugar to the greatest possible extent and try cutting out dairy for a couple of weeks. And for the record, these were relatively smaller studies. Yes. Yeah. No. So. So. Yeah. This. This has to be taken. Yes. Quite right. Thanks for mentioning that, Max. What they checked out in the study was commercial eating chocolate. They didn't really test cacao itself. So commercial eating chocolate obviously has lots of extra added fat in the form of cocoa butter and extra sugar. So if you were to drink traditional cacao drinks with maybe a bit of minimal sugar added, then that may not be a problem at all. Or it might be, we don't know. We don't have the data yet. This recent trial was very small, but it was pretty rigorous. It was it was a well-designed trial. So there's reason for caution, but there's not reason for despair. If you're a teenage alcoholic with acne, don't stop eating all your chocolate. Just maybe eat a little bit less. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so after about 14 going on 15 years of research for this book and for your own personal interest, what have you found to be the most misunderstood thing about cacao and about chocolate? Cacao was originally a beverage, more like coffee or tea, perhaps, although I would say better, certainly different. Um, and it, in that form, it's so it's it's so different. It's it's really rich and intense, and it's traditional. It was it was traditionally drunk without sugar. I like it a bit sweet because it, it it does go well with a little bit of sweetening, but I think I think it's really the idea that chocolate is fundamentally a candy bar. I'm not saying that I wish it was not invented. I think chocolate candy is a marvelous thing, and it's great that we have it. Um, certainly a, a, a very tasty lovely food but I think I, I like if people were more aware that it could be a drink and that some of those traditional drinks really are quite marvelous both in terms of their flavor and in terms of their potential health benefits as well. So those are all of my questions but was there anything else that you felt like you wanted to express or share today or wanted to make sure the world knew before you get a chance to play? Um, no, not specifically. I just wanted to say thank you very much for having me on and inviting me and helping me promote this book and get it out there. I mean, it was the timing, considering my, my hobby is astrology, <laughs> the timing of its release was terrible. It came out just as, uh, I mean, that was partly just when it was finished, you know, like we could have released it in January of 2020. And then, uh, 
I said no because the 1st of January, who's going to be buying a book on chocolate on the 1st of January, right? I was just like, no. So we, we decided on March because we were going for Easter, you know, because it's got to either be before Easter or before Christmas, I figured, because um, of the subject matter. Um, and then, of course, lockdown happened. So because of lockdown, um, it wasn't in the shops. We couldn't do a physical launch. Amazon even took it they even took it off Amazon so for literally three months it was only available on the publisher's website with no publicity so um, now it's now back on Amazon I'm happy to say um, and if it isn't please do do write to them and ask them to, to put it on there but um, it's just really nice to be able to to talk about it and get it out there so thank you yeah so I mean I'm not sure if you've actually said what the name of the book is but I mean where can people buy the book depending on where they are uh, what's the name we know it's yes it's the the book is called the secret life of chocolate and my name is Marcos Patchett so that's the author it's available on Amazon but if you go to the uh, author's website which is eonbooks.co.uk you can get it there I think for those of your listeners who are in America, and I suspect that's most of you, um, there's a different link. I'll send you the link, Max. Maybe could you put it in the show notes or something? Yeah, I'm going to put all of this in the show notes. Brilliant, because, because there is a discount code until the end of October, until the 31st of October, where you get 20% off. And you can just put in the, the code, which is CHOC20, that's C H O C. 20 and get 20 percent off do you have a link for if people wanted to make an appointment with you as an herbalist in london or oh sure yes the the best the best place thank you the best place to go if you want to check me out as a herbalist or um look into me or whatever is my website which is nocturnalherbalist.co.uk and there's on the landing page, there's the details of the different services that I offer. I do a very low cost student training clinic. Um, I also do two different tiers of private services as a herbalist. And I also offer some very specific private services as an astrologer. You can read about on the site anyway, uh, all of the stuff that I do. Thank you so much for listening to this special interview episode from Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. In fact, please share it in any way you see fit. Your support makes all the effort put into each episode worth it. An especially huge thank you to Marcos and Anne Publishing for being in this episode and bringing this book to my attention. To learn more about Marcos and his book, check out the show notes for this episode at the link in the description or on my website at damecacao.com. That's D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road.